It has been said uh, that it doesn't matter what religion you believe as long as you believe it sincerely and follow it faithfully. Believe any religion, uh, keep its tenets, and you will be fine. All roads, after all, lead um, to heaven. Of course, that presents a problem if the teaching of one religion contradicts the teachings uh, of another, if they are in fact polar opposites. You see, how can you have, how can two contradictory truth claims be equally true at the same time? Uh, let's just consider for a moment how a person gets to heaven. Uh, however heaven is defined by various world religions. Consider, for example, the teachings of Hinduism. Uh, For the Hindu, heaven is called the Brahman, which is the highest universal principle. It gets a little bit confusing. Salvation, or moksha, occurs when the worshiper is freed from the cycle of reincarnation and the soul is then united with the Brahman, God. You become free by ridding yourself of bad karma, which is the result of evil actions and even evil intent. Now, that release uh, can be achieved in three different ways. Um, through First, through selfless devotion to and service of a particular God. Second, through understanding the nature of the universe. Good luck with that one. Or third, by mastering the actions needed to fully appease the God. So, so don't miss that. Ultimately, salvation is achieved by getting rid of bad actions and being good. Good deeds merit good karma and absorption into the Brahman. Similarly, uh, are the teachings of Buddhism, which is really just an offshoot of Hinduism anyway. For the Buddhist, heaven is nirvana. The founder of Buddhism, Siddhartha Gautama, Having forsaken family wealth, don't, don't miss that, having forsaken family wealth, traveled from place to place, teaching four basic truths. Here they are. Life is suffering. This suffering is caused by ignorance. Third, the only way to overcome suffering is to overcome ignorance and earthly attachments. Thus, he left those, his family's earthly wealth. And fourth, you overcome ignorance by following what he called the eightfold path, or eightfold pathway, which is right views, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindedness, and right contemplation. So, so, so don't catch that. Do all of that well, and you can reach nirvana. So don't miss it. Do these eight things well, and it's enlightenment in heaven for you. Consider the teachings of Islam. Muslims believe that salvation comes to those who obey Allah sufficiently such that good, that good deeds outweigh the bad. Muslims hope that repeating what Muhammad did and said will be enough to get them to heaven, but just in case, not quite enough, they also recite extra prayers, fast go on pilgrimages like the Hajj to Mecca. They perform good works in hope of tipping that scale. By the way, martyrdom in service of Allah is the only 
we're guaranteed to send a worshiper to paradise, 70 virgins and all of that. So here is what I want you to note. Similar to all of those belief systems, to all of those world religions, is the idea that you earn your way to heaven, that good deeds merit the attention of the gods, and you will make it if, well, if you make it. And if not, you have to come back and try it again, come back as a fish or something else. So let's talk about Christianity for just a moment. How are followers of Christianity assured of heaven? The biblical answer is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Meaning, catch this, it is not good works that earn salvation. And so, if I said to you, true or false, heaven awaits those who do good deeds, all of the world religions would say, True, right? I mean, that, that's what they teach. Most of us would say, nah, false, right? Because we recognize that salvation is not attained by good deeds. Good deeds do not produce salvation. But what if I said it this way? True or false, heaven awaits those saved who do good deeds. <laughs> You're not sure how to answer that, are you? You see, here's the biblical truth. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, which in turn produces good deeds. We've perhaps heard it this way before. Salvation is by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. To to be clear, good works never produce salvation, but true salvation always produces good works. You see? The order is critically important. It is not that faith and good works are opposites. Sometimes we hear that. That's not true. It's not that they are opposites. No. But the order is important, critically important. We do not do good deeds to merit salvation. We do good deeds because we have received salvation. Unearned, unmerited, undeserved grace. This is the significant difference. These are the conflicting truth claims, by the way. The significant difference between Christianity and the other world religions. Other, I could say it like this. Other religions are spelled D-O. Do these things, hold your breath, and you might just make it. Christianity, conversely, is spelled D-O-N-E. It is not what you do, but what Christ has done. Christ, the very Son of God, took on human flesh at the incarnation. We just celebrated that a few weeks ago at Christmas. He lived a perfect life, one that we could never live. Doesn't matter how many times we came back and repeated this life, we could never live a perfect life. He did, however, and died then, not for his own sins, but for ours. And by simple faith in the finished work of Christ, death, burial, and resurrection for sinners, we can be saved, sins forgiven, cleansed, changed, new life in Christ. New life in Christ, you see, producing good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. 
Why do I say all of that? We are today finishing our study of the book of Titus. And a main theme through the book has been indeed good deeds, good works. Paul says it over and over because faith and good deeds are not opposites. They just must come in the right order. Consider these verses that we've looked at. In chapter 1, verse 16, uh, they, that is the false teachers that he's battling, he battled them everywhere, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. Because their deeds are detestable, they're disobedient, they're worthless, these people, for any good deed. Do you see? They say that they know, they know God. I guess we could say, for those of us who live in the Bible Belt South, they, they, they would say that they're saved, but, they're, but their deeds are detestable. They're disobedient. They are worthless for any good deed because, note the order, if we know God, good deeds inevitably follow. Chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, I mean, just called out the false teachers, but as for you, Titus, Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And then he goes on at the beginning of chapter 2 to tell us how sound doctrine should produce good works. Remember the, the division for old men, for old women, for young women, and for young men. And in fact, chapter 2, verse 7, in all the things, talking to young men, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified. In other words, having been saved... Sound doctrine then produces good works. Remember that James said, faith without works is dead. Faith must come first, but there must also be good works. Not to produce salvation, but to prove salvation. Chapter 2, verse 14. Who, he's talking about Jesus, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself the people for his own possession who are what? Zealous for good deeds. Did, did you see the order? Jesus died to redeem us and purify us as a people who then are zealous for, who then do good deeds. Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter we're in. Remind them. To be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. It is all over the book. In our text uh, today, chapter 3, verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have, who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. There it is again. Note the order. Those who have already believed will then be careful to engage in good deeds. To be careful means to concentrate on, to be intentionally, um, uh, 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 to intentionally pursue good deeds. It's something that we choose to do. Chapter 3, verse 14. We'll get to it in a moment. Our people, I love that. Our people. People who have become so by the atoning work of Christ. Our people must learn to engage in good deeds. Notice it is not, this doing of good deeds is not automatic. It must be intentionally learned. It's part of one of the reasons that we gather as a church. To continue to learn 
to do better. Five times in these three short chapters, Paul mentions good deeds, and the critical order is clear. We have believed, and because we have believed, it changes our lives. Now we pursue, we devote ourselves to good deeds, not to be saved, but because we have been saved. That's what the the last passage said a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Again, he just told them at the beginning of the chapter, remind them uh, to be ready for every good work, malign no one, be, be peaceable, be gentle, show every consideration. This should describe us as followers of Christ because, verse 3, we did not used to be that way. We were also once uh, foolish ourselves. We were disobedient. We were deceived. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hating and uh, hateful and hating one another. That is an apt description of who we once were, but no more. Something happened that changed uh, uh, the course of our lives, and it was not... It was not that we pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps, that we finally figured out how to be good. It was not our own goodness. It was not our doing good. You see, we did not change the course of our lives. We did not produce good works that made us good. No. Verses 4 to 7, one of the most stunning sentences in all of Scripture But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, because we didn't have any, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Did you see? He saved us, not because of our righteous deeds. He didn't look, he, he didn't look at the, uh, 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 of the uh, of humanity on the planet and go, I think that, that, that John or Jim would be a good Christian. No. It's not because of righteous deeds, because we did not have any. We were incapable of producing any. So it was by his mercy, which is mercy is not getting what we rightly deserve, which is eternal condemnation. By his mercy, he washed us, he cleansed us, he purified us, he made us alive. That is, he regenerated us, renewed us by his spirit. Renewed, remember, speaks of the ongoing process of sanctification so that we become more and more like him, more holy and actually more doing of good deeds, which then becomes evidence that we have been saved, this doing of good deeds. Which finally brings us, just wanted to summarize the teaching of, uh, of Titus to this point, brings us to our text um, today, verses 8 to the end of the chapter. That's right, it's a record for me, eight verses. But let's just read the first uh, few, eight, verses 8 to 11 to get started. This is a trustworthy statement, verses 4 to 7. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. 
Reject a factious or divisive man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Let me give you the outline of the entire text as we get ready to jump into it. We're going to see some profitable things to do in verse 8. Then these unprofitable things to avoid in verses 9 to 11. And then helping those who themselves are doing good deeds. We ought to be encouraging and helping one another in this doing of good deeds is the point. Paul starts with some familiar words. This is a trustworthy statement. I love that. It's like saying you can take this to the bank. Or when I say and get made fun of, when I say the words to be clear. To be clear, I'm just being like Paul. He has said these words five times in the pastoral epistles. It appears nowhere else in the rest of the New Testament. But right here, five times in First and Second Timothy and Titus, he says, he refers to these trustworthy statements or trustworthy sayings. First Timothy chapter 1, it's a trustworthy statement. There it is. Deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Notice God sent his son to save sinners, not good people since there aren't any. He came to save sinners, that is bad people, of whom Paul said, I was the worst. I did not deserve saving, but he saved me anyway. That's a trustworthy saying. First Timothy 3, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Once saved, we are gathered into this body called the church, and the church has these overseers called elders. That's a good work um, to do. First Timothy 4, I love this one. For bodily discipline is only of a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance. Again, I love this one. Coming at this particular time of the year, the first month of the year, bodily discipline. That means getting up at 5 a.m. to go to the gym and work out. That's a good resolution. Do that. But know this. It is only of a little profit. It is only of a little value. But godliness, that's profitable for all things holding out promise for this life and the life to come. So, so as we've come through the first of the year and you've made lots of really good physical resolutions, make some spiritual ones too that will take you in the, into the life to come, he says. 2 Timothy chapter 2. It is a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If, if we die to ourselves, buried with him in the likeness of his death, raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection, if we die with him, if we endure, if we persevere, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, meaning we struggle in our faith, he, um, he remains faithful, he cannot deny himself. And then, of course, our text in Titus chapter 3, this is a trustworthy statement. Almost everyone agrees. This refers back to that great preceding sentence. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appear, he saved us when we were totally unworthy. He saved us. It's likely all of these Sayings were well known in the early church, either hymns or sayings, maybe kind of like the Apostles' Creed, uh, that were, again, known by the church, perhaps introduced by Paul and, and others. They carried great gospel truth. So, so, so Paul refers to verses 4 to 7 as one of those faithful sayings, and he goes on. This is such a great saying, I want you to speak confidently regarding this truth. The false teachers 
who we're going to talk about in verses 9 to 11, they're, they're adding to that, saying you need to keep some aspect of, uh, of the law, doing good deeds that will help you along in your salvation. No. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Salvation is not earned. It is not merited. It's simply by God's rich mercy toward us. So, Titus, I want you to teach these things confidently. Keep this before your people. So that, purpose clause, keep reminding them of these things so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Do you see? You see what he just said here? The gospel is a reminder to us to do good deeds. You say, how so? To be like our Father. He, he, he just told us when we were undeserving of any goodness at all, He was good toward us. He can tell us over and over in this book, do good deeds, because in His kindness, in His love, in His mercy, and in His grace, God has done so much for us. We have give, been given much more, infinitely more than we deserve. We have been justified by His grace, made heirs according to the promise, according to the hope of eternal life. How then, having been given so much, can we not do good? Train yourself as the idea. Be careful to engage in good deeds. To, to engage in could be translated, devote yourselves that's it's an important um, voice in the Greek. It's the middle voice, which means this is something that we choose to do to ourselves. We train ourselves. We devote ourselves to do good works. This is something, again, that just automatically happens. You make a decision. I am going to be good. I'm going to do good deeds. And notice good deeds are, again, something we do. We're commanded to do. It requires effort on our part. But what good deeds? Well, for starters, all that Paul has said in this letter to old men, to old women, uh, to young women, to young men, to bond slaves, to citizens, to all people. Here's the point. Notice how the gospel affects every area of our lives, family life, church life, work life, lives as citizens. The point is, we should look uh, to do good in every sphere of life. Not just those in which there might be some beneficial return. We are good because the Spirit has made us alive and He is renewing us. And so we do good to whomever and wherever we are. It's who we are. Notice the last part of verse 8. And if you've tuned out, this is the point of the, of the sermon this morning or this afternoon or whatever this is. Last part of verse 8. These things, these good deeds are good and profitable for who? For everyone, for, for, for men. Profitable, helpful, useful, valuable, advantageous is the idea for all men, not just other believers. Notice that. That's, he's going to say that in verse 14. Others in the family of Christ. No, all men. Here's, here's the point. I want, if you're taking notes, write this down. This world should be a better place because we are here. This world should be a better place because we are here. 
Do you see our presence as salt and light should bring goodness to those around us? Some Christians need to be reminded of that. We are so busy fighting everyone, we don't have time to do good to anyone. We don't get to take a break because we're at work, we're at a ball game, or at the grocery store. We are always looking for opportunities to engage in good deeds. We are by nature now, because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we are by nature right now good people. This world should be a better place because we're here. Verses 9 to 11, Paul then talks about some things that are unprofitable and worthless to, to, to all. So be careful to engage in good deeds, he says, but avoid the following four things because they are not helpful. These are not profitable. Just going to go through these very quickly. First, avoid foolish controversies. That's, that's kind of the umbrella uh, of the others that, that will follow, the umbrella category. Foolish is the word from which we get our word moron. <laughs> it could be translated stupid. Avoid stupid controversies for which there is no benefit and there is no clear answer. These are foolish Controversies. Paul is not saying that we don't have theological discussions and convictions and even disagreements about truths uh, uh, for which we advocate. No. The idea is speculation here, even for which there can be no um, answer or no clarity. They are discussions which go beyond the clear teaching of Scripture, and they have absolutely no benefit, and people divide over stupid stuff. Don't do that. He brings some clarity to that. The next three are are more specific. Go together, avoid genealogies, strife, and disputes. Notice about the law. We saw in chapter 1, for there are many rebellious men, empty um, talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. There there was clearly a Jewish contingent who wanted to dispute I uh, want to dis- dispute, dispute everything um, as it relates to the law in the life of the believer, uh, likely making certain legalistic aspects of the law, like circumcision or dietary laws, still binding and still um, necessary as evidence of greater spirituality. It was a rigorous devotion to rules and regulations. It was unnecessary. And it was dividing the church. Further, the whole idea of genealogies were fanciful associations in which they tried to trace their bloodlines to some, perhaps some hero of the faith. For many, it made Jewish ancestry of, of special importance, of greater value. I remember growing up thinking, man, if I were just a, 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 a Messianic Jew, then I would be the cat's meow. If only I were Jewish and believed in G- Jesus, there could be nothing better than that. That's wrong thinking. That's what they were doing. Paul had to deal with this in Ephesus and uh, with Timothy as well. He said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, the only other place that that word appears, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. For the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
For some men strengthen these things that turn aside to fruitless discussion. You see, you see he keeps, just keeps hammering it. This is meaningless. It's fruitless. It's unnecessarily dividing the body. Um, wanting to be teachers of law even though they do not understand what they are saying or, or the matters about which they make confident assertions. He says, don't get off on this stuff that is meaningless about such people. Paul says in verses 10 and 11 of our text, reject them. Those are strong words. Reject a factious. That's the, the word is divisive. Uh, a divisive man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverse He is sinning. He is being self-condemned. The word for factious is the word from which we get our word heretic. (laughs) But we should not read our current meaning of the word back into into that word. It speaks of someone who is self-willed. He's arrogant. He's divisive and willing to divide the church. Listen, willing to divide the church over things that do not matter. I said from the beginning of COVID, I would refuse to allow our church to be divided over a virus. And yet, we've had people leave. Because when the governor said to wear masks, we wore masks. Uh, when, uh, when the governor said we could meet for a period of time, we did not meet. Trying to be submissive to our governing authorities per Titus chapter 3. And, 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 and people were di- had been divided because everybody can be an armchair um, uh, a quarterback as it relates to this uh, pandemic. I refuse to allow things like politics and viruses uh, and, and ancillary things, peripheral things to divide this church. Don't get off on it. Here, Paul involves, uh, invokes the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 18. Uh, these people are, cause, uh, are causing unnecessary division in the church family about matters that don't matter. Warn them once, he said, then again, and if they refuse to listen and stop their divisive, factious behavior, then reject them. The word um, speaks of discipline, if necessary, of removing them from the fellowship of the church. These are strong words. This is actually a little bit hard to stomach. Uh, This is what Jesus said in Matthew 18. If a brother sins, go to him privately, confront him in his sin. If he refuses to listen, take two or three others with you. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, remove them from your midst. The idea is excommunication. Treat them as an unbelieving sinner because that is how he or she is acting. Now, that action, to be clear, is ultimately to be redemptive. You see, you discipline, occasionally even removing unrepentant sinners from your midst for the purpose of seeing them repent and return to the fellowship of the church. You say, that sounds so severe for a person who is just being a little divisive. But I would point out two things. First, Paul says that they are perverse. They are sinning. And they are therefore self-condemned. And second, God is very serious about proper unity in the church. He will not tolerate unnecessary division caused by things that do not matter. Be very careful about what you take stands on. Make sure that whatever you take a stand on is clearly articulated in the Word of God. 
brings us to the last point very quickly, which actually contains um, Paul's closing instructions to Titus. But in them we see that Titus, uh, that he expected Titus to do good to those who were serving Christ by serving Paul. In other words, we see the example here that we are supposed to serve one another in good deeds as we are doing good deeds. That's the point. Examples. Um, so, so Titus was to help them on their way. Uh, the, you, we see this mutual serving one another here. Now look at verses 12 to 15 as we finish the book. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Paul mentions here four men by name. We're just going to go over them very, very quickly. Two that we've heard before, two only uh, are mentioned only here in the entire New Testament. The first two are Artemis and Tychicus. Artemis is only mentioned here. Don't know much about him uh, other than this. Tychicus is mentioned several other times, always as a helpful and faithful companion to Paul and his work um, in the ministry. We see him in Acts, for example, Ephesians, Colossians, and 2 Timothy. He was from Asia, that is Western Turkey, and was always responding to and being dispatched by Paul for various tasks to include perhaps delivering letters to Ephesus and to Colossae. Please note that he did whatever was necessary to advance the work of the kingdom. He was doing good works all of the time. He was faithful to the very end because we find him in 2 Timothy being sent by Paul to Ephesus. And as he did send Tychicus to Ephesus, it's possible here, he says, when I send either Artemis or Tychicus to you, it's likely that he decided to send Tychicus up to Ephesus and he sent Artemis to Crete, which meant Tychicus never made it there. He told Titus to come and see him either uh, once either Tychicus, likely uh, Artemis, made it there. He would find Paul in Nicopolis, which is on the western side of, the, uh, 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 of that peninsula of Greece. It was a great place to spend the winter where Paul could continue his ministry work. He then mentions two others, Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos. These two likely carried this letter from Paul to Titus. Um, Zenus is only mentioned here in all of the New Testament. We don't know uh, much about him other than that he was a lawyer. We won't hold that against him. He was either, thank you, Todd, he was either a lawyer in Greek law or, uh, 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 or Jewish law, which would have made him a scribe. Apollos, however, we know. He was a Jew from Alexandria, well-versed in the Scripture, who served in Corinth alongside Aquila and Priscilla. These two, Zenus and Apollos, were for some reason in Crete, perhaps just delivering the letter, but perhaps more. Maybe they're on their way to Alexandria to the south of Crete. Again, we don't know for sure, but since one was a lawyer and one was well-versed in Scripture, they were likely sent there to deal with these false Jewish teachers. They would have been well-suited to the task. Paul gives instructions to Titus, telling him to make sure that their needs are met Help them on their way so that they lack nothing. Fully provide for them 
As they're doing good deeds, you do good deeds by fully providing for them. Do you see how this mutuality of ministry is to benefit the body of Christ? Look again at verse 14. Our people, now he's talking about Christians, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. I'm about done. Hold on for one more minute. Christians are supposed to engage in good deeds, not just being nice, allowing people to cut in front of you in line with a smile. No, we are supposed to meet pressing needs. We live in a world of increasing needs, and when we have the ability to meet pressing needs of other brothers and sisters, we should do so. It's what Christians do. We are to be generous. We are even to be sacrificial. For example, I could not be more proud of our church for the way that we have responded to the Afghan refugee crisis, the Afghan resettlement program. We were the first. I'm proud of this. I hope it's not sinful to be proud, but I'm proud. Uh, I was proud to team up with Samaritan's Purse to host the very first family. And we have two more families on the way, likely coming this week. These are not Christian families, but they are people created in the image of God who have a pressing need. They fled Afghanistan with what they could carry on their backs, and we are meeting those needs. Dozens of people signed up. Many have provided material and financial resources. I am so proud of our church. It is an example of what Paul is talking about right here. We are doing so because there are pressing needs, yes, but also to show them the love of Christ. I want to be very clear about that. Because you see, and this brings me full circle back back to my introduction. These are not Christian Afghans. These are people who need to know Jesus because not any old religion will do, followed faithfully. All people must know they are sinners in need of a Savior, and that Savior's name is Jesus. We have a unique opportunity to meet needs, and I am so very thankful that we are stepping forward and doing something about it. It is an exact, perfect illustration of what we are doing um, uh, that, that fits this text. Finally, last verse ends with the words, the letter begins, and the way that Paul ends all of his letters with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, may it be with you all, because we need it in order to be engaged in good deeds. Let's stand for prayer. Father, what a great book this has been. A a great letter to an apostolic protege named Titus that he was to use to instruct people in how we should live. We have been reminded in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 how undeserving we were of the grace that you poured out upon us through the person of your Son. You, you reminded us that we too were once lost. We were once disobedient. But you, but you loved us and you sent your son to save us. And now having been saved, you expect something different from us. 
You expect us to live lives of holiness. You expect us to live lives looking for opportunities to do good deeds. All along as we are doing that, we are building bridges of love that support the weight of truth. We are doing good to all people, certainly Christians, but to all people that we rub shoulders with every day that provides an opportunity for us to be able to share the very good news of Jesus. So help us, I pray, as a church to be different, to be passionately committed to doing good for the cause of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.